Welcome to Heart Yoga Radio. I'm recording in the house today, which you'll perhaps notice the difference in the ambience. It's a bit cold and uh, wet out, and has been for a couple of days. The topic today is strikes. And what I intend to do is, apart from a fairly general consideration of strikes, or what you might call withdrawals of labour, by working people. I want to identify the propaganda methods that are used to paint strikes in a certain light in the public discourse. I expect that over time we'll probably need to revisit this topic a few times and I'm sure that we mention strikes in our ongoing podcasts on current affairs fairly frequently. To start with, we need a little bit of background. Now, strikes are, as I mentioned earlier on, the withdrawal of labour by the labour force in a particular industry or workplace in order to prosecute claims with the owners of the business, be that a corporation, a boss... Or what you might call like an, an owner, owner manager, a hedge fund, a government, and it's usually to focus the minds of the employer on a pay demand by the workers or a, a demand for better conditions, say a shorter working week or better holiday pay or more days holiday or. Maybe in protest against impacts on, say, the, the workers' pension fund, and so on and so on. Any number of grievances can can motivate a strike. Now, strikes uh, in the UK and around the world are constrained by by law. Over time, the the matter of striking has 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 also been a matter of uh, struggle for and against the right to strike, for and against the conditions within which one might strike, and so forth. Now, in this country, there are quite a number of laws governing the right to strike, going right the way back to Mrs Thatcher, who passed a lot of laws constraining strike activity and what unions could and couldn't do. Uh, Under Tony Blair, a Labour Prime Minister, these weren't repealed, and we've got fresh layers of anti-strike law or anti-union law on the statutes since since the David Cameron era with more in the pipeline at the moment the historical pattern however is that there is a resurgence of strike activity and trade union activity per se uh, pretty well uh, across the globe in many parts of the world in, in recent years as the neoliberal project has teetered over into economic catastrophe and remember this is a global project and so we see in these results all around the world now I'm going to talk about the UK because it's close at home but I can tell you that the the increase in strikes is occurring in the US for instance and the increase in trade union activities occurring in the US particularly with unionisation of say Amazon and, and Starbucks these uh, precariat staffed industries are finally getting their stuff together and organising labour forces are organising to not 
so as not to be pushed around to quite the extent that they are by uh, the the uh, the ruling class or the owners of industry. I'd also draw your attention to general strikes in India, which there have been a couple in the last I don't know the last couple of years, which have been the biggest strikes in the world ever. I think in one general strike in India, there were a hundred million workers on strike. Now in the UK, trade union membership has declined over the last 40 years, starting with the Thatcher Initiative, to basically break union power. And, of course, the famous case in point was the year-long miners' strike, 1985-ish. I forget whether it ended in 85 or started in 85. But the miners uh, who were employed by the National Coal Board. But coal mining was nationalised. It belonged to the state. The coal mines belonged to the state, run by a board called the National Coal Board. And the miners went out for a year over uh, Mrs Thatcher's desire to uh, close the pits, break the miners' power, and import cheap coal from Poland and South Africa, which was cheaper than the British coal. The miners uh, traditionally were a very powerful union and well able to embarrass governments as they'd done with the Heath government. Very powerful. And the the industry pretty well unionised under the National Union of Mine Works. But uh, Thatcher doubled down on that. The project was basically to break the class power of the working class as embodied in the very powerful miners' union. And, of course, they succeeded. The miners went back and after a year and a number of deaths and some horrendous uh, scenes on picket lines of violence. Uh, Thatcher employed the army to crack miners' heads. I mean, miners are pretty tough guys, the work that they do. They're very physically tough. And they were in running battles with the well, the SAS disguised as police, you know. People died. It was it was bitter. Communities died. Very often, mining would t- t- involve a pit somewhere out in the countryside, with a village, totally occupied by mine workers around it. And so those villages depended totally on that one employer. Of course, when all that folded up, under the uh, neoliberal imperative. Those communities were basically just turned into into ghost towns and broken communities with everything that that entails. Not a happy story. I suppose, you know, with hindsight, we say, well, coal was going to have to go anyway because of the impact of coal burning and coal generating electricity with coal on, on, on climate and the environment. Acid rain was a big anxiety in those days which is one of the side effects of burning coal, particularly if it's sulphurous. But even so, the government could have could have wound down that, 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 that industry and replaced it with green industry and kept those villages alive instead of just devastating the communities. But the cruelty was necessary in order to smash the unions. Uh, when you realise that, you realise that this whole thing and the whole matter of strikes cannot be fully and properly understood without understanding the notion of class struggle or class war. Now, terms like class struggle and class war are fairly alarming, which is a feature of them, which enables the right-wing press to weaponise the terms, 
you know, they can actually use it in a scaremongering kind of way, rather obviously. Similarly, we'll hear uh, left-wing commentators say such things as, oh, the government has declared class war on the postal workers, or the government has declared class war on the working class in the UK. And all of this is misleading, really. The working class doesn't declare class war, and the bourgeoisie doesn't declare class war. And we don't live in a society without class war most of the time, but in which certain rogue individuals try and instigate it or stir it up from time to time because they're troublemakers or they want to, or they have a political agenda of bringing the government down. They're anarchists and so forth. This is not really the right way to look at the matter of class war or class struggle. Really, class struggle is a deep structural feature of capitalism per se, in all of its many forms, in its modern neoliberal form, in its 19th century uh, factory, owner-manager form, and so on. The terms class war and class struggle strictly refer to the antagonism, the economic antagonism, between the people that actually do the work in an enterprise, let's imagine for the moment a, a productive enterprise, the workers actually producing the lawnmowers, the coal, the Cornish pasties or whatever it might be, do not have the same economic interest as the owner of the business. Now, the, the, the owner of last resort of the business, of course, is any shareholders there happen to be. And the legal obligation of whoever is managing that business is to maximise shareholder value. In other words, they're expected to try and put the value of the shares up if they're traded, so that they can be traded for the best price possible, uh, and, and or to maximise profits. Any money paid out in profits or in, or in dividends to shareholders is money that the people actually manufacturing the good, the people actually laying the golden egg, won't get. So the surplus product produced uh, when the, uh, the lawn mowers or the Cornish pasties go to market has to be split between the shareholders and, and the workers. Obviously, the owner of the enterprise wants to purchase the workforce's labour for the, the lowest price he can manage, in most instances. For their part, the workers, the people actually producing the lawnmowers and the Cornish pasties, are going to try and maximise the, their uh, wages. They're going to try and get the best price for the labour that they possibly can. Wages, of course, have to be sufficient to cover the cost of survival. Otherwise, the, the whole enterprise goes down. Unless the owner can find a, a cheaper labour source, maybe by moving the whole enterprise to a country where workers w will work for less. Of course, this has happened over the past decades as, as industry has moved out of the rust belt of the US and 
a good part of the industrial UK to the Far East, uh, to China, where it was possible to get much cheaper labour. This is a very crude description. In reality, there are many wrinkles and variations. Capitalism isn't one thing on the surface. It's, it morphs, it evolves. But there is a deep structure that's pretty well essential to it in, in the various phases. And that is the fact that the relationship between the economic classes involved in capitalist enterprise, the working class and the owner class, are fundamentally antagonistic. And it's an economic antagonism. And class has to be understood as an economic category rather than an imprecise matter of cloth caps and whippets and accents and so forth. To return to the current situation in the UK, currently uh, there are strike ballots or actually active strikes going on amongst at least the following nurses, postal workers, uh, railway workers, civil service, firemen, teachers, university teachers, junior doctors, barristers went on strike, criminal barristers, I believe they settled, uh, ambulances, fire service, And uh, there are various local things have been going on as well. Uh, bus drivers in some places, bin men, and so forth, and, and many more. That's not that's not exhaustive. Situation's been a bit different in Scotland, and in Wales and Northern Ireland, because the the devolved governments have have got involved in some of the negotiations and bargaining between unions and employers. This is the most uh, strike activity and union activity that I can remember for quite a long time. It's not quite up there with the winter of discontent, which I also remember. But it's big enough to have the government pretty well spooked. All of this is in the context of 40 years of wage stagnation. As soon as the neoliberal project kicked off in earnest with Mrs Thatcher's election in 1979, and which was intensified by Ronald Reagan's election in, I don't know what it was, uh, 1982, I think, something like that. Economic productivity has gone up across the world, but the share which uh, the workers have taken has pretty well remained stagnant. Now this has resulted in the uh, what I always call the trickle-up system, which has concentrated wealth and power in fewer and fewer hands uh, over the years, so that the top 1% really controls pretty well most of the wealth, and with it has a great deal of power, power to buy governments and power to control mass media. And the world economy has currently gone into a state of, in which interest rates are increasing, uh, being increased by central banks, and the cost of living is r r rising dramatically. 
in, in other words, uh, inflation has really took hold. We've had quite a long time with pretty low inflation, which in a sense has made it a bit less obvious that people's wages have been just slowly being eroded. When you get a sudden increase in the cost of living, sudden increase in inflation up to it's 10.1%, I think, at the moment in the UK. This means it becomes very obvious that your wages are not going so far and people are starting to realise, well, I haven't really had a, a, a wage increase or any increase. That, uh, and, and the increases I am now being offered, 5%, 3%, uh, uh, do in fact amount to a pay cut. Why these various uh, workers from pretty well, from right across the economy, are either on strike or getting ready to go on strike, is because they are being asked to take a pay cut whilst dividends continuing to continue to increase, whilst the 1% continue to do very well, thank you very much. And if you're low-paid, inflation hits you a lot harder than if you, you, you're wealthy. If you're wealthy, you don't notice. The price of bread can double, can make no difference. If your food bill is only 0.1% of your income, if your food bill is 50% of your income, and your basket of food goes up 30%, you can be in real trouble. And there is real stark poverty. There are food banks, there's starvation, there's child poverty. There is uh, impact on the the health of the population impact on such such measures as uh, life expectancy and so forth. Naturally, the class war propaganda machine has gone into overdrive. And what I want to do uh, for the next 10 minutes or so is go through some of the methods, the propaganda methods that I've discerned in headlines and social media posts and extracts from TV programmes and all the rest of it, from the, the world of discourse and from the, the, the media attention to, to the whole matter, and just draw out the propaganda methods and expose how they work, with, with some specific examples. The first thing is the we're all in it together trope. Now the ruling class, the owners of industry, business, the 1%, the oligarchs, whatever you want to call them, have at their disposal a vast industry which works 24 hours a day on repeating and repeating and repeating and drip-feeding the notion that we are all one tribe. And basically the myth of nationalism is, is the communist form of this trick and what it entails is just claiming that we're all in it together. That our real interest, even though we might seem like different classes of people, are all the same. That there is no fundamental antagonism between the productive workers in an enterprise and the shareholders who draw a dividend. And this is the crux of the royal soap operas, the bread and circuses of celebrity culture, culture wars, and a whole host of distractions, and a whole host of 
symbolic production and maintenance enterprises, which seek to obscure the fundamentally antagonistic nature of the relationship between the, the two main economic classes in capitalist production. That's what it's for, just to obscure that. And the easiest way to, to push this forward is just to go, we're all in it together. And from there, you can elaborate all the national bollocks, the flag shagging, monarchy, even the kind of football patriotism and all of that. I suppose you could say that all of that comes under the rubric of uh, distraction, with uh, there being a special case which distracts us from the essential nature of the economic relationships that as working people we're embedded in. But distraction can be used to distract from like, very current crises, like the cost of living crisis, or like something like global warming. And there's been a, a quite a concerted effort to distract people from the notion that global warming is a, a very, very real threat, not only to our national well-being, but to the well-being of our species. This propaganda work, in turn, is designed to ultimately preserve and enhance the power and the profits of big oil. The second propaganda method I want to mention is the agile ruling class ploy of divide and rule. A popular meme captures what this is about perfectly. Uh, no doubt you've seen it. It's a cartoon which depicts a couple of oligarchs viewing a vast crowd from a balcony. Don't worry, one says to the other. We'll just tell the pitchfork people that the torch people want to steal their pitchforks and vice versa. Just to labour the point, uh, uh, on no account must the mob be allowed to unify since then it would easily be capable of dethroning the power and the and expropriating the wealth of the one percent who we've called the oligarchs and the owners and ultimate controllers of the means of production i should also mention that this this, this same class also control also controls the powerful finance capital uh, institutions which act as an infrastructure for, for this entire game. In the case of the current wave of strikes in the UK, the divide and rule method is being applied ferociously. Uh, the BBC employ it regularly and without remorse, and the gutter press make lurid deadlines from it. Several demarcations are exploited by this methodology. One is to set striking worker against striking worker. The contrasting wage rates of, say, junior nurses and the train drivers are made a thing of. Some workers are deemed more deserving than others. The message goes out. Don't be fooled into solidarity across the working class. Take sides on the question of whether nurses should get more pay, 
then try and drive it or not that's the point the key point there try and get you to take sides in these concocted antagonisms Another demarcation which is exploited is that between striking union members and an entity called the public, also known as uh, the British people. A huge pretense is enforced that strikers are not also citizens, not also members of the public themselves. Uh, Mrs Thatcher even called the miners at the time of the miners' strike in the in the 1980s the enemy within in order to uh, establish and underscore and reinforce that, that uh, spurious distinction. A tremendous effort is being made at the, the current time by the oligarchs' press and their shills and their bots in social media and by mainstream politicians at, for example, Prime Minister's Question Time, to enforce this distinction, to establish this distinction, to hammer it into the common sense of the people. Adjacent to this, and particularly violent, is the use of character assassination. If you've paid close attention to the way the establishment assassinated Jeremy Corbyn, you'll recognise what is now being attempted regarding union leaders such as Mick Lynch, the Secretary-General of the RMT. The union, who are central players in the ongoing rail disputes. One of the gutter press described uh, striking rail workers as Mad Mix Mob. And another one described uh, Mick Lynch as a thuggish Marxist. Elsewhere, he's described as destroying Christmas. And nurses are described as killing patients. And this is really poisonous stuff, often flying in the face of the, of, of the raw facts, and uh, which sadly can be quite effective in mobilising public opinion against strikers, at least to some degree. The point throughout these efforts by the mainstream media and the, the broadcasters and so on is to divide and conquer. There's lots more in that vein. An endless stream like that of the sewage which is pouring into the rivers and which the uh, Tory government has facilitated. The next propaganda method I want to describe is that of the downright lie, a method which serves to obscure what is actually going on when there are strikes, and indeed in the economy in general, and indeed in life in general. Lies are also useful to the ruling class for deflecting attention from what urgently matters to people. Here are a few examples. Number one, the whole of the right, the politicians, the hacks, the bots and all the rest of it, all parrot the notion that wage increases above inflation will further fuel inflation and make it last longer. And that the working class should therefore just suck up what in effect are substantial pay cuts 
And those at the sharp end of all this, the poor, who inflation condemns to destitution, they'd better suck it up too. Yet, no economist of any stripe, left, right, centre, thinks that a wage price spiral will ensue if public sector workers get at or above inflation pay rises. Public sector wages in particular don't impact price inflation since the public sector doesn't sell anything with a price. The right across the board lies through its teeth on this matter. And I suppose in this context it might be worth mentioning that in the private sector uh, firms faced with solid unions are capitulating and paying pretty substantial rises. For instance, Rolls-Royce recently settled with its workers. Uh, 17.9, I think it was, percent pay increase. Rolls-Royce, incidentally, is actually owned by BMW. Slight aside there. Uh, Number two. Nurses are killing people. Okay, the implication here is of a catastrophic shutdown of the entire NHS. The truth of the matter is that, uh, I don't know how many trusts there are, I think it may be around 200 trusts, but only 44 NHS trusts are on strike. It is a minority of the the, the trusts into which the NHS is organised are on strike. Not only that, but strikes are prepared for through consultation and negotiation between unions and the managers so that emergencies and necessary medical procedures are not derailed on strike days. And this is all done very, very carefully. There will be some inconvenience, yes, but nurses are not killing people. I mean, the narrative which the right are peddling across all of the the various media. Here is to slander workers, and it's based on a downright lie. One more example. I mean, I did have quite a big list of examples, but I'll I'll just stick to one more because the podcast's getting a bit long. Multi-millionaire Prime Minister Sunak stands up in Parliament and talks about the the opposition Labour Party as being in thrall of its trade union paymasters and bosses. The truth is that most trade unions are not affiliated to Labour. The two unions that look to be in the government's crosshairs at the moment, the Nurses uh, Royal College of Nursing, RCN, and the Rail Workers, RMT, are not affiliated with the Labour Party, neither of them. No matter what the truth of the matter is, Sunak shouts it out in the House of Commons. The propaganda result is to produce obscurity about the politics of what actually is going on in this uh, winter of discontent. To produce a fog of war, it's almost like he's using that trope as as a smoke bomb on the battlefield. The next method of propaganda that the right employs in these situations where we have uh, working class organisation and mass action is to discourage strikers and to discourage unions and in fact to discourage the wider working class. 
Obviously a discouraged working class will find it hard to organise and muster the energy necessary for focused action. In this context, as the UK experiences a wave of strikes fuelled by a cost of living crisis, the oligarch's Tory government will be looking for a win for a humiliating defeat of one of the active unions and for the disgrace of one or more of its leaders. They are clearly desperate for something like this since in so many ways the Tory party and indeed the neoliberal project have both run out of road. The other recourse uh, of the oligarchs, since they control the government at the moment, they also will try and pass laws uh, to further stimmy uh, efforts to expand union power and, and making legal strikes very, very difficult to effect. And uh, the, this is stuff that the Tories have got in the pipeline as well. So they have that side as well. Uh, they, they are the lawmakers, so... Watch out. Uh, things are going to intensify on this front as well. The playbook here is, again, Thatcher's defeat of the uh, National Union of Mine Workers in the 1980s. But the situation is not the same now, in many, many respects. And I don't really have time to go into that, but uh, it's not the same. As far as I can discern, the unions have got a better hand this time. Not to say things are not going to be difficult. I think they're going to get very difficult. So lastly, the final recourse of the oligarchs in class war is violence. And I draw your attention to the historical matter of how the CIA installed fascist Pinochet government dealt with its trade unionists in the 1970s in Argentina. Well, they took them up in helicopters and threw them out. Uh, and I suppose I might be accused of hyperbole there, but it occurs to me that it can happen here. The idea it can't happen here, I think, is wishful thinking. I'm not saying we're there yet, but it, it doesn't strike me as being impossible. And I think it's already started... The violence has already started with the, 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 the pretty vicious character assassinations that are now going on and which seem to be pretty coordinated between media, politicians and just general operators. All right, to summarise this podcast, class war is real and it's systemic. It's not something popping up from time to time, though it can be more obvious at some times than at other times. But it's systemic. It's intrinsic to the system, the capitalist economic system. Secondly, it does take place on many fronts. And our recent wave of strikes has brought, to, has brought the matter into focus. We're sort of quite lucky that it's coming into focus now. It's not as in focus as it might be, but when it does come into focus that class ward is real and systemic, the workers will be able to, to, to advance considerably. And it's particularly the propaganda aspect of all this, the, the, the part of all this that we, that, that's visible in the public discourse, has just lately really, really intensified. 
which again is doing the useful job of bringing the whole matter in, into focus. Anyway, uh, good luck to anybody who's on strike at the moment. As a pensioner, I'm on permanent strike from uh, work. Um, <laughs> so, make knowledge great again, and thanks for listening.